Well, if you go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 52. And if you haven't gotten an outline, um, just come up and grab one. They're on the front here. All right, so let's go ahead and read this together. We're looking at Isaiah 52. We're going to read through verses 1 through 12. Um, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll dig into this text together. This is the word of the Lord. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, whenever we come to your word together as your people, and we open it up and you speak to us, Father, when our hearts are in the right place, they are inflamed with joy. They are inflamed with gladness. God, they are gripped with the immensity of the moment. We don't take this time for granted. We don't take your word for granted, Lord God. We are grateful to you that we have readily available to us you know, the very Word of God, and that as a people, Lord God, we are not, you know, like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, scrounging for a few pages here and there. But Lord God, you have given to us, you know, readily available your Word. And God, may we not take that for granted. May we recognize the great privilege that it is to have your word in our hands and to be able to read it and to be able to to hear the voice of the living God speaking to us truth. Lord, I pray that our hearts will be enraptured with that fact. And I pray, Father, that we would be a people tonight who would desire to receive from you um, the good things that you have to give to us. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who would delight to hear what you have to say and that we would delight to have our hearts aligned properly with your own, that we would delight, Lord God, in having our priorities being aligned 
properly according to your will. That we would be a people, Lord God, that would desire um, your correction, would desire, Father, your edification, would desire your instruction. That, Lord, in every way we would desire to hear and receive from you what we need for life. So I thank you, Father, for this time. I pray that you would use me as an instrument in your hand for the praise of your glory. I pray that you would empty me of myself. I pray that you would empty me of any reliance upon any of the gifts and the faculties that you've given to me. But instead, Lord God, that you would fill me with your spirit and that I would be a willing and, and a father, a, a humble and, and father, a, a submitted instrument in your hands. Then I pray that it would be for this, you know, the good and the, and the praise of your glory. And I pray, Lord God, it would be for the good of your people. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, open their hearts to receive your word with gladness. And Lord, as we contemplate these things together tonight, let us be built up in our most holy faith. I pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord and our King. Amen. So tonight, beloved, we're looking at this last section, right, of Isaiah's prophecy. Right before we come to the final servant song, okay? The last lead up to the final servant song. That song that really powerfully and indelibly depicts the vicarious suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, his triumph over sin and death, his victorious redemption of a people for his own possession, right? And the the splitting of the spoils that he's won, right? And so in this text of Scripture that we're looking at tonight, here's what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is calling the, the, the believing remnant to make themselves ready. Okay, in anticipation of God's coming salvation, to make themselves ready to receive what God has promised. And it's a compelling message, and it's got several components to it. So I just want to lay those components out before we kind of walk through the text again, so that you're on, you know, you're on the lookout for what we're going to see. In the first section, verses 1 and 2, what Isaiah does there is he tells the remnant basically to, to prepare themselves for God's coming salvation by displaying the proper response to everything that Isaiah has been telling them to respond with the proper heart response right to the words that god has been speaking to them through isaiah then in verses three through six through isaiah the lord is going to examine both the past and the present okay he's going to talk about the history of his people before giving to them a a promise you know of, of, of the future display of his glory then following that following that We have a a hymn of victory, okay? A a hymn of praise. That's really what verses 7 through 10 are. A hymn of of victory. Good news of the Lord's triumph on his people's behalf. And then last, we have this, this closing command given to the remnant to purify themselves in anticipation of the Lord's deliverance. Now, here's what we need to see, right? And we've talked about this a bunch as we've gone through Isaiah. What we have in Isaiah always is this sort of dual theme that goes on, this this theme of dual fulfillment, right? We see a physical fulfillment that represents a greater spiritual reality. We see, you know, a a near-term fulfillment that points to a future and a greater fulfillment. And we see that again in this text tonight. So I want to break this text down. And, and, and let's start, first of all, by looking at these first two verses in which the Lord through Isaiah commands this proper response to his promises. Look what he says again, verses 1 and 2. He says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. 
Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I want you to see first that these words, okay, that he's saying here are, are directed to the believing remnant in Babylon, right? To the true people of God that he identifies here as Zion, right? And they describe this proper response that true believers ought to have to the Lord's promise of deliverance. In fact, I want you to see this. They're commanded to do six things in light of God's promised redemption here, okay? Six things that they're specifically commanded to do. First, they're told to awake, okay? And they are to, what that means is they're to stir themselves out of their spiritual lethargy. They're to wake up to the truth that God has revealed to them. They're not to take God's words for granted. They're not to just kind of like mindlessly, you know, stumble along in, in, in their, in their walk with the Lord, okay? And, and you know how easily we can be afflicted by spiritual lethargy, right? It's very easy to have happen. You know, if we're not take, making constant vigilant use of the means of grace, if we are not constantly, you know, really being vigilant about the condition of our souls, it is very, very easy for us to become spiritually lethargic, to become dis, disaffected, to become just, you know, almost callous to, to the things that we hear, almost kind of like, well, yeah, we've heard all that before and never really be moved by the word of God. And so the, the concern here is that these people, having heard the promises of God, were not to remain in the spiritual slumber that characterized them. When they heard the revelation of the word of God, they're, they're to respond with faith. They're to respond with, you know, excitement. They're to respond with, with joy, right? That's the idea here. In fact, the idea being is that, you know, it's an essential part of being a true believer, of being a spiritual, part of the spiritual remnant in this world. You know, an essential part of that is responding with faith to what God has to say. Not just being unmoved, right? An authentic faith, and I've said this before, but I want to emphasize this again. Listen, authentic faith is not a matter of simply knowing the truth. There's a lot of people who know the truth whose lives depict a lack of faith. It's not just a matter of knowing or understanding theology, right? There are a lot of professors of theology in seminaries that don't believe the Christ of the theology they, they teach. It's not that. Real faith is staking your life on the veracity of God's word and responding to it, to the truth with, with absolute confidence and then living out that faith in obedience to God. Scott Hafman, I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. He rightly says this. He says, faith is not believing the unbelievable, but trusting in God's word because of what one has come to know of God's character. And faith always, quote, goes public, unquote. It goes public in acts of obedience since a faith that does not obey is not a true justifying faith at all, right? James said it very succinctly. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Right? Right? So that are awake. Respond to what you're hearing. And then second, they're commanded to put on your strength. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to put on your strength? Well, it means really to clothe yourself with trust and confidence in God and not in yourself. It means to clothe yourself with trust and confidence in God and not in yourself. It means to stand firm and unyielding, to be established, you know, in something, to be immovable. And the only way that that happens, beloved, is to find your strength in the Lord. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? 
The strength of man fades quickly, doesn't it? I know that's true of myself. Like if I try to stand in my own strength, <laughs> that doesn't last very long, right? It's, it, you can't do it. In a spiritual realm, it's impossible. The idea is you've got to, you've got to find your strength in the Lord. In fact, David talks about this in Psalm 28. And I love these words. He says in Psalm 28, verses 7 through 8, The Lord is my strength and my shield. Now listen to what he says. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointing. You see what David does there? Right? Like he starts out by making a confession. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Right? And then he moves to the practical thing. In him my heart trusts. And then I'm helped, right? My help comes through faith in him. Then he says, my heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. All of a sudden my entire demeanor changes. If I'm downcast, if I'm heavy laden, all of a sudden that changes because my heart exalts in the faithfulness of my God and with my songs I give thanks to him, right? And then he, you know, declares the great truth that the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. We find real refuge in him. That's the idea. So in other words, strength isn't found in pleasing circumstances, right? It's not found either in our ability to manipulate some kind of desired outcome that we want in our lives. You hearing me? Are you hearing me? Strength is found and a settled trust in the Lord, and worshiping Him from a heart of trusting gratitude and communion with Him. It was true of the believing remnant, and it was true of David, and it's got to be true of us. Then they're commanded to put on your beautiful garments. That is, they're commanded to put on the garments of righteousness and holiness, right? to the Lord. David talks about it again, Psalm 29, very next Psalm. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness or worship the Lord in the adornment of holiness or worship the Lord from a holy and from a righteous heart. That's the idea here. In other words, the point is the remnant having heard the words of the Lord, having heard his promises, is now to pursue holiness before the Lord and to be consecrated to him and, and, and to be set apart to him. And no longer are they to be defined by the former pursuit of idolatry and fleshly desire that got them into this calamity to begin with, right? In fact, one of the chief characteristics of true Zion is this turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. Is it not? Is it not? You know, when we get saved, we often think that, you know, <clears throat> our salvation is just a matter of, well, we're in this, 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 you know, pit of sin, and then our eyes are open to our calamity that we're in, the trouble that we're in, and the condemnation that we deserve, and, and we turn from sin, and we turn to the Lord, and therefore we are saved. But in reality, the sin is the, the product of idolatry, isn't it? All of our sin really is. It's the idolatry, at least of ourselves or of others, right? And so the idea is, is, you know, put on your beautiful garments. Turn away from your idolatry. And the reason that Isaiah says that, gives this, gives for this is, he says, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Now there's two ways to look at what he says here, okay? 
He's calling to be a holy people. And there's two ways to see this. First of all, we can look at that that statement as being a promise from God that in the near future, Jerusalem would not face the marauding destruction of the uncircumcised and the unclean nations, all of which were idolatrous, right? And and that is actually would be that would actually be true in the short term before Rome, you know, conquered the Palestinian region in 63 BC. But and I think that this is the key point. It's also, I think, to be understood as emphasizing that the true people of God are not to be merely associated with Jewish ethnicity or, you know, having been a descendant of Abraham. Because many of those guys were uncircumcised in their hearts and they were unclean in their actions. Case in point, think about the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were, you know, the quintessential, they thought, people of God. They thought they were the quintessential, you know, servants of God. You know, God was right here, and buddy, they were right there. They were just right underneath the Lord, you know. And they were taken aback, weren't they? When, when they declared to the Lord Jesus Christ, when they were having a debate with him, and they, and they, and they said, well, Abraham is our father, right? You remember what Jesus said to them? He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So, of course, you know, they said, well, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I think the greater command here is purify yourself as a holy people. Because holiness is the essential character of God's people. The true people of God hear his words. And they receive them and they consecrate themselves to God. Then they're commanded to shake yourselves from the dust, which is a Hebraism that describes shaking off the dust of unbelief, shaking off spiritual sluggishness and inactivity. They're to loose the bonds from your neck, literally remove the shackles and the chains of physical and spiritual bondage to act as slaves no longer. And then sandwiched between that is this command to be seated. And the idea there is take your place as the redeemed of God. Take your your proper place as the honored of the Lord, right? As the people of God. All those commands, beloved, point to this idea that they were to act, they were to live, and they were to walk as they truly are. As the favored of the Lord. They were to be intentional in how they lived in light of God's promises and act as the people of God. 
looking not only to their physical rescue from captivity in Babylon, but also to the servant of God who would rescue their souls. They were to hear and respond and be intentional about their living. You know what's interesting to me? These admonitions, obviously, they're not only for the, the remnants that are the, the, the Jewish exiles that were in Babylon, but they're for us as well. Because I was thinking about it, it sounds very much like the counsel that Paul gives to us in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 11. And I think you'll agree with me. Remember these words? Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and in jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Right? For the Babylonian captives, it was, you know, on the, on the, you know, the BC side of the cross, right? For us, we live, you know, on this side of the cross. And the emphasis for us in modern Babylon is to live in light, not of Christ's coming, not of the servant's first coming, but in Christ's return, right? To live in confident expectation of the completion of our salvation, to live intentional lives. Can I tell you what trips most Christians up? They're not intentional in the way that they walk. They're haphazard about it. They're haphazard in worship. They're haphazard in personal devotion. They're haphazard in, 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 you know, really pursuing obedience. They're haphazard in the means of grace. They're haphazard. Don't you be like that is the idea here. Don't you be like that. You be intentional in all that you do. The real essence of faith that, that, that Isaiah is emphasizing here is that you live in light of the promises of God, even the ones that have yet to be fulfilled. You live in light of the promises of God, even the ones that have yet to be fulfilled. You live by faith. You don't live by sight. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. The proper, the only life-giving response to the promises of God is faith. Everything else is vain. God's people are to live in faith. In a confident trust that God will fulfill His every word. They're to live in faith that produces glad obedience. And then moving on from this exhortation to respond properly to God's truth. The Lord goes on to look at the past and the present before, you know, restating His future promise. Look at it. Look what He says in verses 3 through 6 with me again. He says, For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. I love that. So what's being said here? Well, the idea that's, that, that, that the Lord's people were sold for nothing means they were never sold by God in the first place, right? That's what that means. It means that there was no transaction that was ever completed. They still belong to Him, right? And, and we read here of three historic enslavements of God's people. 
Okay? And notice what he does here. Okay? The first one, the first one the Lord talks about is Egypt. You remember Egypt, the whole enslavement there, right? Remember first, Israel, you know, sojourned there for a time as honored guests, didn't they? Right? When Joseph was, was reigning, when he was ruling, they were treated as honored guests. They lived in the best of the land. They were greatly blessed by God, right? And of course, that ended when Joseph died and new rulers arose who did not honor or regard or, quote, remember Joseph. And it was then that they were enslaved and they were oppressed, right? And as we know, there was a purpose in that. The purpose there was that the Lord would deliver them in order to display his glory over Pharaoh and all the gods of of Egypt and to exalt the power of his great name, right? But the Assyrian conquest of the ten northern tribes and the Babylonian captivity, the now, therefore, what I have I hear, right, that the Lord is talking about, they were a different story. Those two enslavements were the direct result of sin and idolatry and rampant wickedness among the people, right? They refused to worship and honor the Lord. They refused to receive and enjoy a life of blessing and, and joy in the Lord through simple obedience to the covenant, right? And they did it. There's a play on words here. I want, you can't see it in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew, it's very clear. There's a play on words here. They did it all for nothing. They got no gain, did they? They did it all for vanity. It's a play on words. And as a result, what happened? Well, what happened was they wailed at their situation, but more importantly, the name of the Lord, right? And we know what the name of the Lord means. It, it's the idea of the, the, the glory of God and His majesty and, and His covenant faithfulness, His power, all the glorious attributes of God, who He is. They were despised and mocked and derided. I mean, after all, what good was Israel's God if He could not protect them from such a calamity? And you hear similar things today, don't you? When Christians suffer or they face hardship or they're persecuted, you know, for their faithfulness. What is the point of serving a God like that, right? Here's the deal. God sits enthroned and he does as he pleases, right? But don't think that God is not unmoved or unaffected by such blasphemy. He is. And he promises... My people shall know my name. And the idea here is this, is that you know what? God always keeps his promises. And in the day that he acts decisively and unmistakably, it's then that his people experience, you know, have experientially know and and realize his name, his glory, his majesty, his steadfast love and his power. God's promises aren't idle or empty. God doesn't say and not fulfill. He speaks, he acts, he displays his glorious might because he's the only true God. And in the day of his triumph, whether it is his conquest in this temporal realm of the earth, you know, over temporal things, or his ultimate triumph at the end of the age, God vindicates his glory. He vindicates his name and he vindicates his people. In fact, I love what he says here. Here I am. He can't be mocked. And he can't be evaded. And he can't be eluded or avoided. Here he is, immovable. Come and try to move me is the idea. Come and try to oppose me. Here I am. And I'll redeem my people to myself. 
Again, we see God act in temporal situations all the time, don't we? We've experienced it personally, all of us. Where, where God displays his faithfulness to his redeemed, where he authenticates his promises, you know, when we're facing some kind of difficult situation, where he demonstrates the power of his great name. But ultimately, we see this in God's redemption of his people from the bondage of sin and death, don't we? And that triumph comes only through his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to what the Lord says at the beginning. He says, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. What he's saying there is, look, you can't redeem yourself, right? We, don't, we, we are not slaves to sin who somehow can eventually, through our own good works, purchase our freedom from bondage to sin, right? We can't do it. We don't have the currency. In fact, the word for money there, when he says you'll be redeemed without money, is literally the word for silver. You won't be redeemed with silver. That ought to make us immediately think of the words of Peter when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So what are we to say to all of that, right? Well, Isaiah writes for us a hymn of victory here. I want you to look what he says again. Read this with me, verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In other words, here's the idea. The reality of what God is about to do is to burst upon these hearers. And they're called then to celebrate the glory and the joy of it all. So I want you to understand this picture, okay? Here's what the picture is. In the ancient Near East, this would have been easily understood. This picture that, that, that Isaiah is drawing here, it's a picture of a runner. It's a picture of a herald that, that comes returning from the field of battle where a king has been waging war on behalf of his people, right? When, you know, the, when the, the king would go out to battle and his people were left behind, right? They wouldn't know what, you know, it was the day before the internet, right? Not everybody's carrying iPhones to, you know, video what was taking place on the battlefield, right? Somebody had to come with tidings from the battlefield. And they could either be good tidings or they could be bad tidings, right? They could either be the news of triumph or the news of defeat. And so this, this messenger comes, right? And he comes with news of the battle. And the news is good news. And that, that's what makes his feet beautiful and not shameful, right? And that good news is composed of two things. Peace and salvation, right? Peace, the end of God's wrath. 
the establishment of shalom, that, that condition where everything is in proper relation to everything else, where nothing's left hanging, where nothing's incomplete, where nothing's unfulfilled, right? There's a victory that's been won and peace is the result. And then the second thing is salvation, that divine victory over every binding foe, over the power of sin's oppression, broken forever, right? Freedom from true guilt and a gift of a right standing with God. He comes bringing the best news possible, right? All because of the victorious power of the Lord. And it's all because this, your God reigns. I want to ask you something. Is there any greater comfort to your heart, any greater security than that fact? Really? Your God reigns. Your God, the one who is your portion. Your God reigns. Beloved, listen to me. The reign of the Lord is everything. The reign of the Lord is everything. And that's why we're to rejoice. The reign of the Lord is why we worship. The reign of our Lord is why we seek to honor Him as King. That the, that the Lord reigns, that God reigns is the reason we can endure. God reigns. Right? He's the, he's the only true King and His will and His purpose will stand. Praise God. He reigns. He rules. And He, and he, he doesn't only do it for the sake of his glory. He does it for the sake of his glory, but not just for the sake of his glory. He does it for the enjoyment and the everlasting satisfaction of his people. Amen. He can be trusted because he reigns. And then notice how the proclamation, this good news, it begins with a single messenger, but then it spreads, right? First it goes to the watchman on the wall. Could be the prophets, you know, that, 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 that are referenced here. But the idea is these watchmen on the wall, they join in the joy. They lift up their voices to declare the good news that the Lord is returning to his people in victory. That he's uniting himself to them once again in indivisible union. Then the song spreads from the guys that are on the, on the watchtowers, right, to the very people themselves. All those that have been in a state of ruin and desolation. Their sin has left them alienated from God and from each other. It had left them bound, you know, by enemies that were physical and spiritual. They had been helpless in their despair and their guilt and their ruination, but no more. God has comforted his people and they're redeemed. Because the Lord reigns. And because this Lord who reigns has bared his holy arm. Right? He's, he's done so for a holy purpose. He's pulled back the sleeve of his garment to free his sword arm to destroy the enemies of his people. He doesn't bear his arm. You know, he doesn't bear his sword arm in the way that some earthly tyrant does to aggrandize himself at the cost of those that he could just beat down. Rather, he wields his sword for those who are trampled down by the enemy of their souls and broken on the rack of their own sin. He wields his sword arm for those who are imprisoned in the darkness of fleshly desire and he does it to rescue enemies and rebels and give them salvation. What a God our God is. In all the ends of the earth, he says, you know, all the nations shall see the salvation of the Lord. And when you think about that, we can think about this on a lot of levels, right? We can think about this on a lot of levels. In the near sense, right, it's going to be fulfilled, this, this revelation of God's redemptive power. It's going to be revealed 
um, you know, in the, in the physical rescue of the remnant, right? When they're repatriated and they return to Jerusalem, you know, there's only one, there's only one explanation for that. And that's that God has acted on their behalf because they certainly didn't have the power to restore themselves, right? But in a greater sense, it's fulfilled in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is the arm of the Lord, right? I mean, remember what Paul said. I, this is one of my favorite scenes in Acts. Remember when Paul, you know, he's, he, he comes before Festus and King Agrippa, and he, and he has to give a defense, you know, for himself and for his ministry and stuff. And he says, and I'll just pick it up kind of partway through. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, right? The whole world. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, that most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, right? And to him, I speak boldly. I love, this is the last part I want to really emphasize. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. The work of Christ on the cross wasn't done in obscurity. It wasn't done in a corner. And what he's done has been proclaimed in all the world. And so therefore all the nations well, maybe not all the people groups yet, but all the nations have heard, right? And ultimately, listen, the entire world will see and will know the glory of the Lord and the redemption of his people when, when, when Jesus, you know, as, as Paul describes in, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when the Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. All the ends of the earth, all the nations will see the salvation of the Lord. And in light of that, he gives this final exhortation to to the believing remnant to depart and to purify themselves. Read these words with me just once more. Verses 11 through 12. And Isaiah writes, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So what do we do with this great word from the Lord in light of this? What are we to do? Well, first thing he says is depart. And the idea here is leave the old life behind. Decisively, once and for all. Go out from the world. Make a decisive break from everything that's been, from everything unclean in the eyes of the Lord and purify yourself. Make yourself ready. 
Right? We hear the Apostle John saying to us, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And then he says, Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Isaiah is saying to the remnant, right? That they were, we are, to live as, though, as those who are spe- expecting the Lord at any moment. As travelers who are packed and ready to go on that last leg of our journey home, a new exodus is about to take place. Get ready. That's the idea. And while there are many echoes of the original exodus in this passage, it's really the contrast and not the similarities that are the most significant. When the Israelites, remember when they left Egypt, they took with them whatever they could get from the Egyptians, didn't they? They looted them, man. They took their silver and their gold and their their clothing. Like, man, they walked out of there rich, didn't they? It's like watching the smashing grabs on, you know, going out, going on out in L.A. and Seattle and stuff. But this time, what was it? They were to leave. They were to leave everything behind that was tainted with paganism. They were to carry with them only the vessels of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar removed from the temple when the exile began. And that he doesn't explicitly identify that the Levites were to do that is really important here. Remember, the, one who, the ones who bore the vessels of the Lord were the Levites, right? Those who were specially consecrated to the Lord. Now the idea is all of you are to be consecrated to the Lord like that. And they won't leave in haste as their ancestors did when they let, fled from Egypt. Instead, they'll go out with dignity like priests in a procession. But they do share in common the real glory of the Exodus, the first Exodus. And it's this, the presence of God with them. He will go before and behind. He will guide and protect them every step of the way, and he'll do it all the way home. But what a great promise that is. What a great promise it is to us that he who's begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Departing, purifying themselves for leaving, that was to be the reality that controlled everything that they said and did. In fact, it's the way the people of God are meant to live in every age, isn't it? We're to leave Babylon behind and the worldliness and the estrangement from God that it represents. In fact, how appropriate is it that the Apostle Paul would allude to this very passage in summoning us to live as the people of God in this world when he said in his second letter to the Corinthians these words, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. Almighty.
believing remnant? Us right now? We're the Lord's. Our God reigns. We belong to Him by creation and by redemption. And we are to live in hopeful and prepared expectancy that the Lord is coming to take us to Himself and that He may do so at any moment. That means to fight against adult expectancy and prepare ourselves for the day that is soon to be. Salvation draweth nigh. Salvation is coming. Even so, come Lord Jesus.